Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Thank you, JJ. I also want to thank my listeners around the world. Never, ever give up hope is now heard in over 70 countries with a very large audience. What that tells me is that this world needs the message of hope, and that's what we are here to share. It doesn't matter what our backgrounds are, whether our ethnic background, our financial background, our educational background. We all encounter situations in life where we may feel hopeless. And we, if we can tap into somebody who's been there or somebody who has some wisdom in that regard, so much the better. And that's what the platform of this show is about. Somebody who's possibly walked in your shoes and can help you and give you some tips. We're all human, and it's just wonderful to know that there are other people who may have walked there and who can be a help for each of us. This is what I love about my guests. I've now interviewed, oh, probably 110, 120 guests, and every single one of them has the same message. It is the message of hope. It's a message of encouragement, and they also often give us coping skills and tips. Barbara Cohen has a master's degree in education. She has taught both in elementary school and middle school as a language arts instructor. She was a writing consultant and has conducted workshops across the U.S. Currently, she is part-time literacy instructor for Marrakesh Rated, which is a nonprofit organization that owns halfway houses for developmentally handicapped persons. So I know that you'll be able to share some of that with us as well. Now, Barbara, you have been, you were a foster parent for several years. This is a unique challenge, I'm sure. So I welcome you and hope that you can share with us your story today. Welcome, Barbara. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you. So what motivated you? Can you can you tell us what motivated you, maybe some of your background as a child or whatever, to become a foster parent and get involved with foster children? Yes, um, I grew up in a very uh, liberal democratic family, and my dad was the first uh, Caucasian to join the um, NAACP in New Haven, Connecticut. And so I was very much influenced by his political views. And when I was a teenager, I worked in a day camp uh, where many of the children were uh, foster children. It really touched me. Um, There was a a little boy who 
particularly made his way into my heart, I guess you could say. And um, it, he really needed sneakers. And my dad was in the shoe business at the time. And I remember, you know, trying to see what I could do to help him. Really? But at that point, oh, maybe I was 16. Hmm. I had this idealized notion that when I grew up, you know, I wanted to take in all the foster children in the world. Of course you did. And of course, it <laughs> happened. But um, so uh, Alan and I raised three sons um, and we had the empty nest for a number of years. And I was most of my career was spent in pretty much middle class communities. My last job was as, as a consultant in an urban school system. And I was really heartbroken because it seemed almost on a daily basis the Department of Children and Families would be coming in to remove a child. This one particular day, I had been working with a fifth grade class, so I knew the kids fairly well. And one day when I went down the hall to teach the class, some of the kids were in the hallway and they were crying. And they were crying because one of the classmates had been taken away. His mother had left him home alone overnight. Oh, my goodness. And it was at that moment I went home and talked to Alan. You have to understand, I mean, we were in our late 50s at the time and, mm-hmm. you know, having had the empty nest for a number of years. So I asked him if we could get certified for temporary foster care, which there actually is no such thing. You get mm. certified for foster care and then you can say, I only want temporary. But okay. I mean, okay. So, we, so he was willing to do that and we took the class. And it was just at this time I walked into the middle school uh, office one day. It was in late spring. And the social worker asked me if we uh, were officially certified yet. And I said, well, we had finished the classwork, but I didn't have a certificate. Well, there was a young woman in the office whose mother had come in uh, because her the girl's older sister had reported sexual abuse. And the mother was freaking out actually Hmm. and this younger sister who was 12 was terribly frightened of her mother and so the social worker asked me if I would at least take this young lady downstairs or out of the office which I did and it was she's 30 now so this is 18 years ago and I I don't think I'll ever get that picture out of my mind I have a very small office and she sat at my computer and basically just told me her story of being sexually abused from the time she was a baby um, and being physically abused by her mom. Having uh, By the time I met her, she'd already been in and out of foster care, both f- uh, family where the, mm-hmm. there was abuse and then um, strangers. Aww. And she was so articulate and she, you know, all she wanted was a family that, you know, loved her. And mm-hmm. it, it really touched me. Well, the two girls were sent off because we couldn't take them at the time somewhere else. And it it wasn't a good fit. They really needed to be in a home where there were no other children because, Mm. you know, they needed that environment. So it was a few weeks later, we got the call and they asked us to take them for eight weeks, which was more than Alan had signed up for. (laughs) But again, being the sweetheart he is, he said, okay, meantime, we had a a child's wedding. One of our sons was getting married in nine weeks, but because they wanted the older sister to graduate from middle school. So we did take them. And um, the youngest, the younger one connected with us immediately. The older sister was a little more, um, I don't know how to say it, a street, if you will. So living in the country wasn't her idea of a lot of fun. But they both had 
deep emotional issues that needed to be addressed immediately. Dealing with the girls was easy. It was dealing with DCF that made it difficult because, you know, the first social worker kind of dropped them at the door and said, I have to go have dinner. And oh, by the way, I mean, to repeat, here we are, we've raised three sons, um, never had a daughter, and now we have two abused teenage girls, 12 and 13, at our doorstep. And we have the heart for it, but we had the training, but beyond that, you know, you just have to right. go with your innate yes, skills because yes. they weren't terribly helpful. And that really was difficult because the, the other workers weren't so great and, you know, trying to advocate for them uh, to get the help they needed wasn't really appreciated. Mm-hmm. I think there are many foster parents who don't have the initiative or the will to do that. But eventually um, they <laughs> – it came to the point where they were supposed to be leaving and um, they had no place for them to go. And my son was getting married. We had people coming in from all over and they said to us, oh, don't worry. Um, we'll have them sit in the DCF office during the day and at night we'll find them a bed somewhere. Oh, my goodness. I mean, how horrible is that? So we couldn't do that. So luckily, my future daughter-in-law's parents said, let them come to the wedding, which they did. And they left the day after. And that was very painful for both the younger sister and me. Um, when they left, she was, you know, crying out my name. Oh, she, oh. she called us mom and dad. Oh, my goodness. That you know, quickly. I was, I was, yeah, immediately. I was so heartbroken. Um, but, you know, at that moment, it needed to be that way because we hadn't signed on for a long term. Well, mm-hmm. what happened was mm-hmm. next placement was horrible. Um, here she is, a 12-year-old girl with a lot of problems herself, and she goes into this home where there are multiple foster children, and she's left to babysit for a baby, uh, which was against the rules, uh, while the new foster mother was off somewhere. So it was a pretty awful situation. We wanted to stay in touch with them and mentor them, and DCF didn't want us to. So we were really upset about that. It actually took us three months, and we had to go to a state legislator to ask you know, for them to rescind that decision because, um, you know, we thought it was in their best interest and we love them and, you know, right. we wanted to right. could for them. So it took three months and, but we finally sat, it, it was for a reason, it's hard to explain and it was, it was a ridiculous reason. I think it was just because we, we were vocal advocates, <clears throat> but um, eventually three months later, we were able to reunite with them and the youngest one, the older one had already gone to a group home, and she was pretty happy there. But the youngest one, um, she went from between the time that she left us and when we were able to touch base with her again, she had several suicide attempts. She had been in a mental hospital. Wow. And by the time I caught up with her again, she was in a like a children's center. It was sort of like a prison. It was like gray cinder blocks, and mm. she had a room in it. It was pretty depressing, especially for a 12-year-old. She eventually ran away from there. And when I went to, you know, see her, they said they would only let us take her home if we committed to three months. That turned into several years. And really? during that time, yes, um, she she's just an amazing person. And um, I'm hoping, I'm sure she will as soon as she can get settled, that she would be a guest because she is, when you talk about hope, what this kid went through. Yes. Uh, and her now and talk to her she's the most lovely um positive person uh probably that i've ever met she's 
you know, forgiven her mother, which I'm not sure I could ever do, considering what her mother did to her. And her attitude is she's trying. It, we treated her as if she were our own child. She had every benefit. We bought her a car, not a new car, but a used car like we did our kids. She had everything. But at 16, <clears throat> her mom, who had disappeared with the youngest sister and the molester number two, who molested her oldest sister, to Florida before they could snatch the youngest daughter away. And um, she returned and she, the, um, let me back up for a second. Okay, so she returns. She There's a court, not a, a protective order where the, I'll call him molester number two, was not allowed to be in the mother's presence. Well, he was caught on her doorstep. So they took away the youngest daughter, who, by the way, this is very complicated, was fathered by the man who molested my foster daughter, um, whom she thought was her biological father, which he wasn't. So all three girls were sexually abused by the time they were 12. But little by little, the oldest daughter, who was in a group home, chose to go home. And somehow the mother got the youngest one back. And so she was uh, continually on the phone trying to get our foster daughter to come back home and said things would be different and all this. So at 16, our foster daughter signed herself out of DCF, gave up the opportunity. Had she stayed in, in the state of Connecticut, they pay for college up to whatever the state really? uh, tuition is. Yes, it's amazing. And she went home thinking it was going to be ideal. And of course, to this day, she regrets that move. At that point, you know, I wasn't sure if we were going to be able to see her because of the mother. And honestly, it was like I, it's like I had a child had died. That's how I felt because mm-hmm. I loved, we both loved her. I mean, she just was, you know, part of the family and so much fun. And, um, and, and that's not to say we, you know, we had to, <clears throat> we had to um, really advocate her in many ways. She, she really obviously had a lot of issues. I'm sort of rambling a little bit, but when she was 12, uh, 12 or 13, there was a court case. Uh, the, the first molester, the one who molested her, was on trial, <clears throat> and he refused a plea bargain, so he went to trial, and she had to testify against him which was for a 12-year-old is very difficult, obviously, for anybody. Mm -hmm. And the mother testified against her daughter. But the good news is that he received the longest sentence ever in the state of Connecticut, 50 years. So that, you know, at least one predator, pedophile, went behind bars. The second molester who molested her sister took a plea bargain and he only served a few years ironically I asked the prosecutor because the the first molester was married and had a little girl and I said to the the, the prosecutor why would a pedophile get married and she looked at me like I was nuts and she said Barbara they they produce their own victims and it's like oh my god I know that's hard to handle the hope side she married at 19, had a child, maybe 21, which wanted her to get her education taken care of first. But she became a medical uh, assistant and a phlebotomist. She's still, she's still struggling now because she had a job, but it didn't work out. And now she's going back to school and has taken some classes, which aren't all that easy for her. But she, um, in our workshop, she concludes her portion with Langston Hughes' poem, Mother to Son, which ends with, you know, life, 
life hasn't been easy for me, but I still climb in. And that's what she has done. It's just she's just an amazing human being. And um, I'm so glad that she's been part of our lives. You know, people always say, oh, you did such a wonderful thing. And I say, this was so meaning. This has been such a meaningful experience for us. You know, she enriched our lives. I think I said before, I learned more about teaching and learning when I tried to help her navigate the school system. And um, it, it's just, I feel, we both feel very grateful that she's been part of our lives. And it gives us great pleasure to see her take these steps. You know, it's not a Pollyanna story. She's still in public housing, um, but she she just doesn't give up. She took two classes at college this year because she moved around so much when she was a kid. By the time she came to us, she was in 12 foster homes and 20 schools. And because she's bilingual, um, her vocabulary was very limited. Her education was negatively affected. So she really struggles with school. But this is at a community college. This young woman would spend practically every day in the tutoring center, hours upon hours, in order to pass these classes. And then at the end, she ended up with an A and an A minus, which was awesome. No kidding. Well, my original question to you was, what made you decide to be a foster parent? So what I'm hearing, first of all, is passion. And when you shared that story is there is a tremendous amount of passion for these kids. And I'm sure that because of what you're doing now as well, you are seeing a lot of things within the system that probably really bothered you and you sound like a fixer. You want to fix the kids, you want to fix the system, and (laughs) you will butt heads if you have to to do that And because that's what comes with anything that we're passionate about. So I applaud Mm -hmm. you and I thank you for sharing um, that story. And one of the questions I was going to ask you, which you basically have already answered, is how much of that do you feel you contributed towards her? In other words, did you just do your job or was there above and beyond that made this, that changed this girl so much? Is there something that you specifically do or is there a knack that you have or a gift that you have that seems to maybe empathize or understand on a different level, like what, what do you see as your gifts in this area? I think both my husband and I are, you know, very compassionate people. And um, when she, you know, when she, I, from the day I met her, there was some connection. I can't really explain it. Okay. Um, it was just sort of meant to be. We just treated her respectfully and we showed her what a family is supposed to be like. And I think she would say, okay. well, I know for the first time. Let me, let me, this, this is a, something that Alan wrote about in his book. Early on, well, I'm trying to think when she moved in. With, I'm not sure. But it was winter. And she had never been allowed to be outside. And she's a, she, at, the, at 12, she's, she's, in fact, she doesn't look that different now. She's a big girl and looked much older. But she wanted to go out and play in the snow. And so I found some snow pants for her, and she went outside, and Alan and I look in the backyard. She's making snow angels. Well, it's kind of funny because she's a big girl, and, mm-hmm. you know. And then she came to the door, and she said, can I have some food coloring? I said, sure. So I gave her the food coloring, and then a little while later, she comes back. She comes next to the door and says, I want you and Dad to look outside. 
And she had written with food coloring in the snow, I love you, Mom and Dad. Oh, isn't that beautiful? Yes. And I I can't explain. I mean, it's just a personal connection that we just meshed right away. We treated her with respect. We gave her everything. We gave our kids. She had a normal life. Well, you know, she she definitely appreciates us. She would not have been able to get as far as she has gotten without our help. I mean, we're like her guidance. Yeah. You know, like if she calls me and something, you know, and she wants because she's kind of all over the place when she's because she hasn't had the experience. So she gets an idea. Well, maybe I'll be a police officer. Like, you got to be kidding uh-huh. me, Kateria. You know, you're, <laughs> you were scared at Halloween. How are you going to be a police officer? You know what I mean? And this is another interesting story. You know, they told us because these girls have been abused and whatever that, you know, Alan shouldn't be alone with them. Well, don't you know, the first day they're with us the next day. This the youngest one is sick, and for some reason I couldn't stay home. He stayed home with her. When I got home, he said, she, "All she did was talk all day long. She's a veritable question machine, mm-hmm. and that's how she approaches learning. Okay, she, it's not good. the grade. She just is so thirsty for learning. So, you know, I, she's been a gift to us, really. And I don't, I not, I don't want to be idealistic. Not all foster children, yes. you know, are. And I'm not saying it was easy. It wasn't. But it was worth, I mean, and it wasn't easy because we kept on their case about their responsibility, you know, what they're supposed to provide these kids, particularly in terms of mental health care. So let's talk about that a little bit. What, for someone who's considering fostering children, what can you give them as far as some tips or possibly uh, some coping skills when they run into situations that may be risky? You have to think about that. I mean, it's really hard because there are really fabulous workers and there are workers who are just there for the dollar or for their paycheck. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you have a really good worker, um, then it's a little bit easier. Um, but we found we would have to go up the chain. If we didn't get anywhere with the worker, we couldn't reach the worker, then we'd go to the supervisor and all the way up as far as we had to go. So, so in other words, if you're taking this on, be prepared for po- a possible fight, mm-hmm. and you're fighting for the child. Exactly. That's the bottom line, isn't it? Right, right. And you know, it's and a lot these kids, a lot of these children have certainly have issues about trust because they've been taken advantage yes. of, um, and they they feel discarded or unloved. Um, my foster daughter's mother used to say, "I wish you were never born." So how do you, know. you build that trust? How do you do you have any suggestions or is every child different and it would be no different than building trust in your own child? But then these kids come with baggage. Oh, yeah, it's very different. Um, you know, it's. So it's, you take baby steps? I mean, what would be the procedure? Is it like baby steps? Do you, for example, you get a girl that comes into your home. Do you immediately hug her? Or do you give her her own space? Like, what are the what are the steps to building that kind of relationship and that kind of trust? You know, that's a really good question. And I had to deal with that as a teacher as, you know, more and more issues came about about, you know, abuse in education. Because everybody has a different comfort level. Right. Um, you know, someone who, if you go to hug a child who's been abused, physically abused or whatever – they may think you're going to hurt them or they just might not be comfortable because of what happened to them. So it's a really, I don't think I would hug a child 
initially. I would mm-hmm. have to, I, the guidance counselor school friend, I said, I would ask the child, and I wouldn't do this on the first day, you know, do you need a hug? Rather than, in, you know, mm-hmm. not not really knowing them very well. Right. Um, you know, I I just, I think it's instinctual to tell you the truth. There's no right or wrong answer. You know, you get as much background as you can right. on the child. And you, you do have to give them some space. I think what's really important is to allow them to make choices because for most of these children, they have not been able to make choices. When they go to a home, you know, or with the work, they're told what to do, how to do it. And so they don't really have a lot of independence. Um, I think the most important thing is to try to make life as normal as possible. Good point. And, and yes. have them fit into, like uh, our foster daughter wanted to play softball, so we got her on a softball team. You know, find out their interest, and okay. but you can't overwhelm them because it, it would be, you know what I mean. No matter how much you feel compassion, it, it, like you said before, it really has to be um, baby steps. And do you do you think it's a good idea to bring foster children into a home such as yours who has an empty nest or to bring them in when there are children in your home already? Like, is there an ideal one preferred over the other? In my opinion, I would say the empty nest was a really good idea for children who are very needy. Okay. Because you do... It, you know, it, 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 you do expend a lot of time, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. not even, I'm not even talking about the emotional aspect, but, you know, the doctor's appointments and all this stuff to get them. Um, and I, I don't think I can confidently answer the effect that's if you fine. I have just, children at home. I've just, wondered about that. And mm-hmm. my gut feeling is unless your kids are really stable, it may be mm. difficult. But on the other hand, I've met kids who or people who've grown up where their parents have had multiple foster kids and special needs kids and they're fine. So I think it depends on the parents and the stat, you know, how, what's the word, you know, their biological children, what their uh, mental health or (laughs) I don't mean mental health, but, you know, how stable they are. Yes, yes. Well, that's mental health. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, in the ideal world, you would say, yes, it would be wonderful. Um you know, to be able to do that. I, when when my kids were young, we did the uh, Fresh Air Fund. So we used to have a little boy, same little boy came for six years every summer for two weeks. And that was great, but it wasn't, you know, two weeks is two weeks. It's not exactly a lifetime. So what are you doing now? So we decided, we, you know, we, we were no, when we're older and we didn't, a foster care situation wouldn't be appropriate for uh-huh. us or a child. So we decided we would mentor a foster child and we were looking, we were hoping to have a young child and the woman who we were dealing with once or twice offered us like someone who was 19. We said, no, no, that's not going to work. Well, finally she called again and she had a woman, again, a college student who goes to a school near where we live, who's now living on her own after being on foster care. And I finally said, you know what, we'll do it. It was at this same time that we, became, it's a long story and I won't go into it right now, but through a connection, we, we met a woman who has, was also was a foster uh, kid and she became very successful. She's, she was a lawyer in New York and she wrote a book called Etched in Sand, uh, which is about her childhood, abusive childhood and foster care experience. And she's very involved 
in um, trying to make changes in foster care in New York. And so she also put us in touch with another woman who we spoke to. And basically two things that they've been working on, which we thought would be a fabulous idea. Number one is a mentor program Mm. for foster kids who are going to college because the statistics of foster kids who complete a higher education is abysmal. So like a one-on-one. The second thing is, um, which they told us about, which it would never dawn on me, was a food bank. Because like our foster daughter, this happened, not foster daughter, our, the girl we're mentoring now who was is a foster uh, kid. Uh, we were having dinner with her <clears throat> and she said if her DCF check didn't come the next day, she'd be out of food. And this sort of happened at the same time where we were speaking to these people in New York and they said, you know, there's really a, a huge need for food. Uh, and so basically we've been contacting the local colleges to find out if and actually one of the two of them have started a food truck and they're working on it. And when I called the Connecticut Food Bank, because we really don't know what we're doing. We're just sort of going by the seat of our pants. Mm-hmm. The head of the Connecticut Food Bank told me that the, the, they are just beginning to recognize the dire need for food for college students, not necessarily just even foster children. So those are two things we're doing. And okay. then we've, we've been doing uh, workshops on how to raise, um, how to help foster teens become successful. And where do you do these workshops? Like what well, kind of arenas? We did the Connecticut uh, Foster um, Child Children Association last year, and we just got back from Las Vegas. We did the national conference, and then we also did. A, and this is with our foster daughter, who is always the star of the show. She's wonderful. <laughs> People always end up, you know, applauding her and standing up for her because she's such an amazing young woman. And um, then we've been to uh, the two children's centers in Connecticut. And then she and I just did a a little bit of a workshop, but more of a conversation with where I work. They have a work to learn program for foster teenagers who are either mandated to the program because they've had some police issues or whatever. And so she and I, basically she went and we spoke with them about two weeks ago. And her main message is, you know, that she Never should have left. Many of these kids are very anxious to get out of the system and get out of control. Of course, yes. Uh, but, you know, when you can have your education paid for, it's a huge mistake. And so that's really her message because now she has loans where had she stayed with the system, uh-huh. she would have been much better off. Marrakesh is where I work. Marrakesh was started by two Yale women in the 70s, and it was I believe its main purpose was to support abused women. Okay. And since since then, it's moved out. Of, it's really expanded. And basically, it's a nonprofit that helps people with disabilities. So they have group homes. They have, you know, uh, where people live on their own, but they get support, uh, all levels of disability, all kinds of outreach programs. Okay. So the program I teach in is a 12-week program that trains uh, people who uh, are trying to get off welfare to work with people with disabilities. So after 12 weeks, they get a certificate um, that, um, you know, that they're have a, it's a human services certificate. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then they, they're more likely to get a job because the organization is so uh, big at this point. There's so many different kinds of jobs available. I want to say one thing that I find heartbreaking is when we spoke to these foster kids last week, Many of them were talking about how, you know, 
they're not, they don't feel part of a family mm. that, you know, they're sort of like a border. And when you become a foster parent, you have to prove that you are financially independent, that you're not doing it for the money. But in reality, that's not really the case. In Connecticut, for a, a child who ha- has no special needs, a foster parent gets $1,000 a month. Mm. And what these kids were telling us is that they don't see much of that money. Wow. Um, which is not the way it's supposed to be. Of course. Um, and that was really heartbreaking. And so I did some uh, digging and found out that Connecticut actually has a Foster Children's Bill of Rights. But when I looked at it, it didn't say anything about how that money is supposed to be spent. So I contacted the state and then I got this information back and they actually show how they come out with this amount. And that's taking into account, you know, being able to go to a theater, Mm -hmm. taking a mini trip, you know, doing things that a a child in a normal household would do. And these kids were saying that um, this one young woman who actually is not part of this foster group, but she's a student in my class, the biological child goes to a private school and takes all these vacations and, you know, she doesn't. She needed some, actually, she said, you know, she was desperate for some bras, and the woman just kept saying, yeah, 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 and, you know, wasn't taking her, and she also said that they didn't even tell her when dinner was being served, you know, so she's really more like a boarder, right? and that's not the way it's supposed to be, and it's probably, you know, unfortunately, there are too many stories like those rather than the ones where the people are doing it because they really love children and want to make a difference. So is there there some kind of police system that is in effect at all to try to correct this problem? But you know what the problem is? They don't have enough foster homes to begin with. They're they're happy just to put a roof over someone's head. And I said to one of the young ladies, I said, well, you know, what about your social worker? And like then this one, this one said, yeah, I have this really great re- relationship with my social worker. So she has this connection. But then the social worker got a promotion and the connection is no longer existing. So it, it's really, you know, it's really difficult for some of these yes. kids. But I, I want to say on the opposite side, last year when we went to this convention, they were Connecticut has 14 districts and they were honoring a foster parent in each one of those districts. And honestly, I sat there with tears in my eyes the whole time because there were these people who, you know, had the last one was like she had to be in her 80s and she had had hundreds of kids. Oh, my word. And each story was, you know, it was just so such a beautiful story. And that you don't hear about those. You hear you hear the negative ones. Exactly. So what would you like to say to sum it up as far as the message that you want to give the listening audience, what 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 do you want to share from your heart? There's a quote that we use in our workshop who was the, I think it was the founder of the Boy Scouts. And it's something like 100 years from now, it doesn't matter whether you had a fancy car, a big house and lots of money. Um, but it does matter that you made a difference in the life of a child. I didn't say it as beautifully as he mm-hmm. wrote it. You know what? It's like that story that you hear over and over again about the starfish. Do you, do you know that story where this, there's all these starfish on the beach and this kid goes to throw one back and the person says, hey, you know, that's only one? And he says, well, yeah, but it makes a difference to that starfish. <laughs> and that's, you know, if I guess my our philosophy is if we can make a difference in our little corner of the world, 
that's that's a start. That's right. Mm. I thank you for your passion because you certainly are an advocate for fostering children. I think that if anyone is wondering about it or thinking, you know what, this is something that I could possibly do and make a difference in another child's life, I'm sure that you have been beneficial in encouraging them. You know, when you take the training, at least where we did, they were really honest. They, they, they tell you, this is not. And if someone is really interested, I would suggest that they start small and that might be saying, look, get the certification, but say I'm only willing to take emergencies, which some, which often, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. something happens, the kid's pulled out, there's no place to put them. So there like, could be 24 hours or, you know what I mean? And right. see, because you don't want to take in a child and then decide it's not working for you That's and have to send point. that kid That's away. Point. Yes. But I would definitely not go cold turkey into it. I would do a little you know, short-term kind of thing first. Thank you, Barbara, so much. And I appreciate that one for sharing and hopefully bring hope to somebody else. (laughs) Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.